we finish these experiences where things happen outside of our control and they're really horrific. We never expected it. We have a choice. Is this going to form part of our narrative that negatively impacts every single thing that we do in the future? Or is it just a part of what you've experienced and maybe, just maybe, it can become part of your superpower? Emily Abadi here, bringing you episode 162 of Hurdle, a wellness-focused podcast where I sit down with inspiring individuals to talk about big wins, tough moments, and everything in between. On the show, you can expect vulnerability, motivation, and candid discussions with everyone from top athletes and CEOs to aspiring entrepreneurs on what it really takes to follow your passions. My mission is simple, to inspire you to be your best self move with intention and have some fun along the way. I know you're probably wondering what is going on? Where is hurdle moment? It is Wednesday, depending on when you're listening to this. And while I am interrupting our regularly scheduled programming, because I have a very special conversation to bring to the hurdlers with my dear friend, Samantha Gash. She is an ultra athlete, extraordinaire of sorts, a role model. She's a humanitarian. She is so many things and mostly inspiring. We talk about a ton in today's episode, but what I wanna make sure that I mention right off of the bat and why this episode is popping in to the feed like this is because this weekend, June 11th to the 13th, Sam is helping to put together an awesome event called the Relief Run. Relief Run this weekend is going to benefit World Vision Australia's India COVID-19 appeal. This will fund more beds, oxygen machines, and medical supplies in some of the hospitals in the worst hit districts. Now, while things may feel like they're getting back to normal over here in the United States, the state of affairs over in India is, it's frightening. And since the beginning of the pandemic, at least one in 49 residents have been infected with a total of more than 27 million cases. Now, if Relief Run sounds familiar, that's because last year's installment raised more than $1 million in support of the Australian brush fire relief efforts. Now, here's how it works. Participants all over the world, hopefully you, have the opportunity to run or walk a plethora of distances. We're talking 5K, 10K, half marathon at any location or any time, as long as it's within that window. All you have to do to participate is go on and register at reliefrun.com.au. That is R-E-L-I-E-F-R-U-N.com.au. I'm going to be doing it. I hope you will too. And again, the link to sign up is reliefrun.com.au. And I will be sure, sure, sure to put that link in the show notes. Now for a little more on Sam. She's a social entrepreneur. She's a former Survivor contestant. And as we talk about in today's episode, we actually met on the most remarkable trip to Ibiza, which feels like both forever ago and just yesterday. To say that she has done a hell of a lot of good in this world 
would truly be the biggest understatement. She has turned her passion for running into a vehicle for social change. Completing events like Run India in 2016, this is a 3,200 kilometer run from the west to the east of India in an effort to raise funds for World Vision Education Initiatives, and a 222 kilometer non-stop foot race across the Himalayas at 6,000 meters above sea level. Note, this is an event that had only been completed previously by one man. Yeah, again, inspiring. And Sam was actually a corporate lawyer with little to no athletic background before getting into all of this incredibleness. So it goes without saying, I'm just blown away by her. I'm inspired by her. I want to be better because I know her. Uh, and I'm so grateful for her for giving the hurdlers and me a slice of her time uh, and helping me put forth the good word about the good work that she's doing. Talk about purpose. Please, again, consider doing the relief run and heading on over into the show notes to click the link to sign up. Also, while you're in there, make sure you are subscribed to the weekly hurdle newsletter and that you are following all of us, Hurdle, Emily, Sam, on the socials. With that, let's get to hurdling. Today, I'm sitting down with Samantha Gash. She is so many things, an endurance athlete, an inspirational speaker, an entrepreneur. How are you doing, Sam? I'm good. You know, I was having a think, okay, when were we in Ibiza? And it was 2019, and it feels like a lot has changed from a whirlwind trip there. <laughs> it feels like yesterday and also like eons ago, and I wish that we could be back there like ASAP. So for context, Sam and I met in, you just said it like the proper way, because I'm going to say Ibiza. And as I said it, I'm like, is it Ibiza or is it Ibiza? But I'm like, so it's either Ibiza or Ibiza. And there's going to be a lot of people who will later message you and tell you their correct version. But it's it's a blend. It's a blend of the two. It's a blend. So yes, we met over in Spain and it was wonderful on a trip with Under Armour. And I was just so taken by a few things about you right off the bat. First of all, I mean, you run obscene amounts of miles for the most beautiful causes. It's not just like, I'm going to get out there and run crazy amounts of miles just because. Why don't you give some context about the farthest amount of miles you've ever run in one swoop you mean like in one project or in like non-stop <laughs> I would say project do we love that we have to define that <laughs> <laughs> um okay so uh it was 77 days and it was a run from the west to the east of India uh, I'm going to do it in kilometres, so sorry for everyone listening in miles, but um, it was like a bit over 3,500 kilometres and it was from uh, Jaslamir all the way to the hill estates in the east in a place called Shillong. Um, and so that's kind of like the numbers. And you know what, I feel like I could, I could say to you, I did 400 kilometres or uh, 10,000 kilometres and really the answer is that it was long. Um, but I guess what I was so much more driven to in that project is that I was using it as this, um, I guess, vehicle or mechanism to be able to explore, um, you know, these various barriers to quality education that children 
across NDFA. And I think a lot of people who are connected to social impact, you know, you're always trying to explore what is the best vehicle to be able to understand that or to raise attention or to raise funds. And there was a tipping point in my life where I was like, maybe running can be my thing. You know, I, I did study a law degree and I thought I would kind of work in humanitarian law. But I think the cool thing about life is as we evolve as humans, the way in which we achieve like our purpose and our drive can be totally different than what we thought when we were kids. For sure. And we'll definitely dive into that tipping point in just a little bit. Aside from this unbelievable trek across India. And again, as I said, your uh, ability to run obscene amounts of miles for good causes for a bigger purpose. Also just taken by your optimism and your friendliness. I think that that trip was around the time where I started to do a lot of thinking uh, back in early 2019 about what it is that I'm putting out into the world when I meet people and what it is that those people are walking away with. And if it is what I'm hoping that they're going to walk away with from meeting me. And I just was so refreshed by your authenticity and what you brought to the table. And it was one of those meetings that I was like, okay, like this is a great example of what it is that I want to be putting into the world. Oh, I love that. I mean, thank you. I think it's a cool exercise to sometimes think, you know, what would be three words that you would want someone to describe you by? Um, And I remember years and years ago, I did that exercise when I was working in communications. And I remember thinking one of them was, I want people to think that I'm relatable. I want them to think that I'm authentic. And I can't remember what the third one was. And I remember them being so important to me. One, well, I mean, I think we all know why we want to be authentic, um, but relatable because I knew some of the things that I did don't sound relatable. And I feel like if you can't find a way of contextualizing it or saying it in a way that means people who have no interest of running, then you're really cutting off your ability to kind of share stories and experiences and to kind of allow humankind to be able to find parallel like moments from the things in which you do to the things in which other people do. So that's lovely that you kind of picked up those things. (laughs) So you already hinting at a little bit of your running journey and that it has been just that a journey. Let's rewind it back a little bit and talk to me about when you first started to really get interested in sport. And what we haven't established yet is obviously you guys can hear by her accent that Sam is not in in the United States. <laughs> yes, I'm Australian and I've probably given you dodgy recording because I'm in a hotel because I'm here at this conference at the moment. So um, sorry if the audio is crap. <laughs> yeah, like my starting in running, I mean, I think it's similar to a, a lot of people. I mean, I don't think many people are just born great runners, um, but I definitely was not born a great runner. Um, And I would say that I'm still not a natural runner. I've just worked really, really hard at it, which is something that I've loved about following your journey since 2019, because you work so freaking hard for what you put out into the world in both your sport and in every other area. And I relate a lot to that because I, you know, I think sometimes the things that are really important to you, you have aren't just given to you naturally Um, and maybe you kind of respect it even more and you have gratitude for it because it wasn't kind of given to you on a silver platter but I was like crap I was uncoordinated Um, I was super short I am still super short I'm just under five foot Uh, and I've married a six foot three man so it's just hilarious and I think 
you know, in school, I just never really felt like I belonged in the sporting arena. And I don't know what it's like in the US, but in Australia, a lot of like that social credibility is tied up into your capabilities in sport as a kid. Um, so I did feel like quite awkward and uncomfortable with myself and definitely thought that being destined for an academic life was probably the path that I would end down, um, which was true. Like I ended up working as a corporate lawyer, but running kind of in my late teens became an outlet from maybe my more intense, methodical, academic mindset. Um, like I found it like a sport to write English practice essays. And my mum was cool. Like she's not a runner. My dad's not a runner. Dad had polio as a kid. But mum knows a lot about, and I only reflect on this now, she's very good at understanding that people need to connect to nature as a fast track way to mindfulness. And so she loved gardening. And in fact, my mum and I both have this chaotic brain. Uh, and so she's always gardening as a way of grounding herself to like nature and to the planet. Uh, and so she'd always be like, just go for a run. And like I, live, like I lived as a kid right near a national park. And so I would just go for like this six kilometre run. Um, and it was always like at dusk because it was at the end of the day and there was kangaroos coming by. And it was just a place where I always felt truly in the present like I wouldn't wear headphones I didn't own a phone back then and it was just I wouldn't kind of I could kind of reset and then kind of get back to my let me go and type some stuff now <laughs> afterwards so that's kind of the early days of me running and it was really like you know 1920. Just some kangaroos coming by. <laughs> I said that particularly for you, but it is actually true. <laughs> I appreciate it. I appreciate it. So you get a little bit into running as an escape and you said that you were interested in law. So is that where your educational pursuits had taken you? Yeah. I mean, I either wanted to be a lawyer for the UN or I wanted to be an actress on a really trashy soap. So very diverging like aspirations. Uh, and I, I studied a double degree in both performing arts and law. So I was really hedging my bets for like a, a quite a long time. Uh, and it took me 10 years to complete that double degree and then kind of do my honours as well. So I was at university for a very long time. And I guess it was during that that I kind of just kind of found myself funneling into the very, I guess, the acceptable trajectory um, of corporate law. And I just felt that's what success was at that point in my life. And all of a sudden it felt like the doors to being in the UN just weren't seeming obvious and, you know, being an actress didn't seem as important to me anymore. And so, yeah, I ended up working at a corporate law firm um, for a bit. What is the hurdle moment that comes where you realize that this path in corporate law just isn't your shtick? It wasn't like an obvious thing. It wasn't like an immediate, like, no longer do I want to do this. Um, it's an interesting system in Australia, totally different to the US. Um, I got my job at a top tier corporate law firm two and a half years before I even finished my degree. Um, and so there was this period where I'd been like working so hard to get the marks to kind of be accepted to this great job. And then once I got it, I was like, okay, in two and a bit years, you're going to start working at a really serious place. Maybe you should just take the foot off the academic accelerator and just try a whole bunch of things. Um, and I went on what I now kind of call this yes quest, which is where I just started to say yes to things that I never would have thought I had time to say yes to. And I did like random stuff like I went out into the middle of the like desert and performed circus arts with Indigenous children. I went backpacking through North America and like I slept under the stars. And that's when I actually did my first marathon. 
And it was a bit of a aha triggering moment. And I guess the marathon was more, was the most transformative experience of that entire Yes Quest. And probably because I was the shittest at that out of everything. I was better at circus arts than I was at, you know, running a marathon. Um, Isn't it funny how we like, we walk away from experiences when they're really sticky and challenging and we're nearly on the brink of finishing and it's not the glory moments that we kind of hold on to with pride. It's the ones where we've had to fight resistance that we could so easily have chosen the path of least resistance, but we didn't. We like made it to something new, a breakthrough. Um, and from that, I just wanted to experience run in a different way. And I read a book about these two Aussie guys who had run across the Sahara Desert in this race called Race on the Planet, and it was 250 kilometres, and I'm like, that is an adventure. Um, And it wasn't even the run. It was the other stuff. It was like going to this faraway place that maybe you just, you know, had heard about um, and seen in books and kind of spending it with people who might be completely different, like culturally and based on their religions or their experiences, but you're all standing on the same start line and you could be the shittest person in that race or you could be the best and you're literally all side by side and you've got to share that entire six days together. And I'm like, that's kind of cool. Um, And then I kind of looked at my university calendar And I'm like, I'm just going to take six whole months off from uni and I'm going to do one of these races, which I chose uh, in the Atacama Desert in Chile. And then I'm going to do a three-month internship in a capital defense office in Texas. Um, So even though I decided to go in corporate law, I'm like, if I'm going to spend this time um, in this part of the world, like let's do South America, let's do um, Texas and just have a wild adventure where I have no idea what the end result's going to be. Two things to double click on. First and foremost, where was the first marathon? Oh, so my first marathon was in Melbourne. The first ultra was in the Atacama Desert in Chile. For the first marathon, do you remember your experience? Let's talk about like after mile 18 and did you hit that wall and was it as difficult or easier than you imagined? It was horrific. (laughs) And for me, it was 32, which I think that kind of comparable. That's with like 10, that's with six miles to go. Yeah, with six yeah. miles to go is where I really hit the breaking point. And I think, I mean, obviously that's a really far way, like most people hit it there. But I think for me I hit it there also because I only ever trained up to that place. Um, and so I had kind of kept building to my mind, what's it going to be like when I cross that precipice into the unknown? And I dwelled on it so much that I almost, I don't know if I was physically destroyed or if mentally I was so concerned about what that would be like that it started to affect my physical response and like as we know like the mind and the body are like inextricably linked you know it's just like the gut and the brain are so linked you know so if we're feeling anxiety or stress or pain it can start to trigger responses in the gut and it's like my mind started to trigger my legs to feel like lead. <laughs> okay, so that's the first question. And then the second question here is why did you pick Texas? Oh, well, it has um you guys have death row in Texas. So um I was definitely again still bent on that social impact um perspective. There was an option for me to be in New Orleans or Texas and I was working for an organization called Grace. So it was like Gulf Region Advocacy Center. Um, And so I ended up being assigned onto a death row case and I was supporting the mitigation team in like research and discovery to kind of take a case to retrial. So that that was the work that I was doing. What was the trigger for you becoming super interested in uh, social justice and social change? I think I've always been bent 
towards contribution in some form. Like even from a young kid, like I always wanted to volunteer or find ways of like supporting local charities or, you know, talking to homeless people on the streets um, and wanting to understand um, the way in which people live different lives. And it never seemed right to me from a young age that some people experience such significant suffering whilst other people, relatively speaking, don't seem to have anywhere near the same amount on a social and cultural and a, you know, um, economic perspective. So I think inequality has been at the root of it and then a bent that individual small contribution can make an impact. You finish that yes chapter, so Mm. to speak. Does that culminate after doing the stint in Texas or are you still going after that? I mean, I think I'm kind of still going. (laughs) I don't think we stop, Um, though now I have to learn to say no. So I've said yes for so many years. The yes quest was great because it started to expose me to a whole range of stuff. And so I truly started to understand what I cared about. I think when your operation of living is so narrow, it's very hard to genuinely say, like, I really love this. I want to dedicate my life to it or I want to kind of commit myself to this certain thing at this time because if it's all you know, how do you know? So the Yes Quest just allowed me to broaden my base of experiences, the people that I got to meet, so therefore my networks and just like everything, aspirations and dreams. But now as I'm like, it feels weird to say I'm in my mid-30s and I feel particularly for women, there is very great power in learning how to say no, because for everything we say yes to, like whether we choose to or not, something is getting shut closed as well. So I'm very clear on what I care about now, and I just need to have more confidence to say no. So you leave Texas and you go back to Australia. Talk to me about what life was like when you get back there. And at this point, do you contemplate going back to uni or are you like, I'm all set now? No, because I hadn't finished my degree. So I was very, I had committed to, like I had a framework in mind. I was taking six months off and then I was jumping back straight into six months. Uh, I had a boyfriend at the time that had kind of very lovely in his way of letting me kind of go for six months and kind of having that experience for myself. Um, But I came back and I did feel unsettled. I felt like I had experienced two very significant immersive experiences that had completely shifted me off my access and also that's in between that time that's when I decided to do all four of the races so I had just done Chile then I worked in that capital defense office and it was during that time I was like "Mm, no woman has ever done all four of these like what do they they call race on the planets four deserts grand slam like no woman's ever done all four of them in one year and I'm like I'm definitely not the strongest I'm not the fastest I'm definitely not the most capable but maybe I'm the person that can like logistically pull this off through just like absolute persistence of kind of making the pieces of the puzzle work together. Where do you think that comes from in you? I love a project. (laughs) I think my mind is definitely bent, not so much for the physicality, but for the mental orchestration of crafting something from nothing. Um, And I, I, I think my brain works of like, okay, well, I was a uni student. I was so poor. Like I had, I mean, poor in the relative schemes of university students that have to pay $3,400 to be able to do these races. So I didn't have the money. So the first thing was like, one, will my university let me take time off to run around the world? Um, Because I was in a serious degree where you can't normally just take absences. The second thing is if they actually said yes, how could I fund this? 
and see how can I train for such a diversity of races? How can I build my body up, adapt? Um, and how can I get the kit together? So it kind of, it was all these different pieces of the puzzle and you kind of have to work on all of them simultaneously, but some of them have to take a different priority at certain times because you need like certain ones to gateway open in order for the next one to reveal itself. So I think I like the puzzle. The puzzle. It's interesting to hear that there are so many barriers to entry, so many hurdles, if you will, about going after a goal like this, because for many, it would be just way too much. But for you, it was super enticing. So Talk me through, let's go straight to that last of the four and what that experience was like. Well, if you if I liked the puzzle to begin with, um, when I finished Antarctica, um, I was a completely different person. Like my, I'd gone from not being a runner to start with, like not like a serious runner. I pretty much walked the first race because I was injured. To the very end, I was like, I was a competitor. Like I was kind of competing in the podium position. Um, and I was just like, I can race this much, but actually adapting and understanding this idea of, you know, relentless forward motion, you know, where slow progress is still progress and like dropping the ego when it gets to execution, but utilizing your ego to get to start lines where you have no experience in. And I love that about your 20s because I think for a lot of people, like, Ego and naivety are really strong um, benefits to do things in arenas that you have no exposure to. And so that was, I use that. Like, and I'm a big advocate of like how to play with your ego to make it your superpower, like dropping it and then bringing it out at certain times. But I remember thinking at the very end of the four deserts, I can do anything now. Like anything. Then there was a couple of caveats. Like I've got to really want it and I've got to be willing to do the work. But I knew that if I wanted to do the work and I wanted to be there, I, I felt that I could do anything. Two things. First of all, talk to me about Antarctica. Like what's Antarctica like? <laughs> Should we go? Well, I mean, it was, we, we flew down to a shire, which is like the southern tip. And then we caught a um, boat across the Drake's Passage. And it's pretty like intense, the Drake's Passage. I remember I was the very bottom of the boat, which like was such small kind of unpleasant rooms. And it was like where the boat was swaying the most. I remember one night I was like going from like, um, I was chatting with Ryan Sands and then I was in the room next to him. And I like, I remember walking to my room and then the boat just swung and I literally banged myself between the bed that I had and the other person's bed and I had this massive bruise down my leg and I haven't even started the race. Um, so it's quite a journey to get there and you're in a space with all these people who like to run. A lot of them are quite introverts and you have to spend like five, six days in each other's company and you, all you're doing is eating bread and kind of trying to not have um, seasickness. So I, I thought it was actually a really interesting social experiment. Uh, and I was studying for my trust law exam at the same time. So it was just, it was so kind of, it was ridiculously silly. And then I get there and there's all these rules. Like when you're running in Antarctica, like the rule is you've got to give way to the penguins. And I just thought that was really cool because it's like, here you are in this race, but the habitat and the environment are like the primary thing. Like never really should runners have the right of way in a landscape that's not ours. And I liked that. I liked that kind of like humbling nature of like respect where you are, like tread lightly, take 
out what you bring into the space. And now it's cool. It's an amazing place. It's incredibly volatile. Like one day we started running and all of a sudden they're like, get back to the Zodiac boats. And we literally ran for 45 minutes. And then we're like, we could see that the weather was going crazy. So we had to get back onto these little Zodiac boats to then get back to the main boat. And so the coolest thing and the weirdest thing of the race is you never knew how long you would run for. They literally would just base it on like the environment. And I remember one year they got all the way to Antarctica and then the weather was so bad. I think they only got out of the boat twice, but we had a pretty good year. And it was like maybe four or five times we got out. And one time we ran for 45 minutes and another time we ran for 12 hours. So, and it was loops. So there was so many, it wasn't like any other other races, which were a point A to point B. It was like a track race, but in the snow. And, you know, you could see what other people were doing sometimes based on what circuit they chose. And they chose different circuits, but that's just, it was all novel. It kind of, it was sparking like my different stimulus of like what running, particularly ultra running in a trail environment. And it can be probably more of an adventure than like a structured race. And then the second thing is, tell me how you pronounce the word caveat again. <laughs> caveat? Caveat? Yeah, I'm like, what? <laughs> caveat? Caveat? <laughs> Can I tell you that I used to say it, I used to pronounce it as caveat. No clue, like, where I got that from, like, where I learned that, uh, like, pronunciation. And it was probably like three or four months ago that I got like two or three messages in a row. And they were like, you know, you say this word wrong. And I feel like you should know that because I don't think it's intentional. Don't you just love it when your community calls you up and your pronunciation for something? And it's like, I'm like, thanks, guys. Thanks for keeping it real. I mean, I'm the kind of chick that when like a song's playing, I think I know the words. And so I'll sing it really loud. And then someone's like, oh, mate, like you've been saying those wrong lyrics for a really long time. And I'm like, I just love the flow. I'm just I'm just feeling the music. <laughs> I'm just having a good time over here. Okay. So I'm glad, I'm glad we established both of those things. Antarctica sounds crazy. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have a new pronunciation lesson and now we can move on to when was I, just because I know a little bit of your story and I'm curious about this. I know you met your husband on a reality television show. So segue me to that. Well, we've gone from 2010 being the end of the four deserts in November And then I met Mark after a couple of other suitors in between in 2017. 2017. Yeah, so seven years later, a couple of expeditions passed, multiple job changes afterwards, and I was on Survivor. (laughs) And uh, I met this man on it's so funny because like I had like I was wearing like a pinafore dress um and I was because I was trying to be like okay so I'm small and sweet and cute and um that was kind of like I was trying to go under the radar a little bit and he had this like big leather jacket and they placed us we were on a barge like in the South Pacific because our race was in Samoa and the only scene that gets staged in Survivor at least in Australia is like that first opening shot um, of the first maybe 15 minutes uh, and they take you out the day before to shoot it and then they take you back into your hotel room and they're like, tomorrow it's game time. But at the time you think that you, that's the start. And I remember this guy with this leather jacket came on and they put him on this like car on this boat uh, and he was sitting on the bottom of the car and they said to me, can you please sit on that crate of eggplants? 
And I'm like, what? They're like, yeah, can you sit on the crate that's got the eggplants in it, but don't sit on the eggplants. Can you just sit on the rim of the crate? And I'm like, oh, cool. We can totally tell status right now. I'm on this rim of this um, crate of eggplants and this guy is sitting on the bonnet of a car, like who looks like the Fonz. It was like, all right, let's let's roll with this. <laughs> <laughs> How did you end up going on Survivor? Because again, mm-hmm. I feel like before you were saying uh, the yes phase, the yes quest hasn't actually yeah. ended. So I would think that that's a big moment in the yes quest. It was, a, it was definitely a yes moment. I had not long finished my run across India. And I wouldn't say I'm lost. Uh, I was, I definitely wasn't lost. I, whenever I finish my runs, people always go, have you got that hangover of that experience being over? And I'm like, you know what? I don't have FOMO. I don't have like the after race blues because like I give it everything. Like when I'm in an expedition, I give my heart and soul to that experience and I've got nothing left. Uh, and so it's like, okay, cool. It's about rejuvenation time and then kind of, regrouping and then heading for the stars again, whatever that might be. But in like a week period, I had three different people tell me that I should apply for Survivor. And I'm also like a proponent of like listening to like intuition and just kind of following, you know, your gut. And so I did an application, like the final day applications were there. Uh, And then the next day they called me and then the audition process started. And the whole time I was like, there's no way I'm going to do this. This is really bad for like my corporate speaking career who knows how they're going to betray me. Like, you know, this is not what I really want. I've never been into reality TV. Uh, And then I got, then I got into the audition and they made you do this like competition of like burpees and all this kind of stuff. And I'm like, yeah, let's do this shit. (laughs) And it like shifted my mentality so quickly from like not wanting to do it. And then to feeling like that rush. But then I got on the Island and it, it actually was harder than running across India. And I totally didn't expect it to be that hard. What about it made it that hard? I definitely went into the show thinking it was there was going to be a high focus on like physical challenges and that me being me, um, which typically has me having building beautiful relationships, friendships, you know, influencing people positively to maneuver in a direction that I would like, like all the things I'm good at normally would be good on the show. Um, but it's amazing how like what you're good at can very quickly be said is a threat. And the way the game works is like all you need is like two people to say, well, Sam's a threat. And then all of a sudden you're the person on everyone's radar. And I remember thinking, oh, I just hadn't kind of constructed the, I mean, I work for myself. And like, Emily, you might feel it too, because it had been long ago that I'd worked in a corporate arena. And I think in a corporate arena, you're more mentally skewed for a little bit of like the ruthlessness of social interplay. But I choose every single person I come into business with. And I consciously, and I'm proud of like the women that are in my life who will like raise each other up and we're not competitive with each other, even if we're in the same place. I believe in abundance. I'm very like opposed to the scarcity mindset. And then all of a sudden I got on the island and it was like, oh, Sam, the person that you're being is like all of a sudden not a good thing. And it's totally gameplay. I know it's not reality, but it was like, oh. So I remember really going quiet and going, I don't know what to say now because I didn't go in with a game plan but to be myself. And it's also really hard to lie to people. Like, And it's also hard to be in an arena where people are lying to your face. I thought I'd be okay. Like, I'm like, it's a game, Sam. But actually, they're real humans. You actually need each other for survival to get food, to craft a shelter, to win challenges. So you're breaking apart human needs 
And it's also breaking apart a human's need to belong. And I felt like when I was a kid, there were so many instances where I didn't belong. And, and all of a sudden, I felt like I was going back to like that schoolyard mentality. And I, I guess it was more triggering for me than I thought. A lot of past trauma mm. coming into the mix here. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, I mean, you mentioned uh, your India run as well. By this time in 2017, you had already raised more than $115,000 via your efforts, whether it be running across Australia or goodness, uh, India or South Africa, like everywhere. So for you at this point, did you really feel like you had fell into a groove and that this would be your purpose? Oh, I've always wondered, like I've never thought too far ahead. Like I was a kid that always thought that I'd have a 5, 10, 20 year plan. And the older I get, the more I realize I don't want to be held to that. I'm very open to like evolve and to go with what feels right. And I always said that I'll run and do these projects for as long as it really feels important because I can tell you like how hard India was where not one day went to plan and like running up to, you know, 75 kilometres, up to 75 kilometres every single day for 77 days while still trying to engage in community activations and understand stories and share those stories you know particularly stories about the prevalence of the sex trade and how that affects you know a woman's right to get access to education um, issues of poverty issues of child marriage there was a lot to hold and I felt like it was high deliverables and the stakes were also high and that wasn't even including like the demands of the run so yeah I was a little bit burnt out after India and I definitely was in the pendulum swing of recovery phase uh, and I hadn't really thought like I don't like the what next question because I sometimes I'm like what's next is a bloody good lie down and I think people forget even in like a training cycle the power and the importance of the recovery day or even the active recovery and that's where like mental and physical like consolidation happens like calibration it's what like fires us for the next session or the next phase of our lives so I hadn't thought too far ahead which is probably why I had space in my life to even think about survivor and yeah like it was I felt definitely felt I was in my groove of like using running or adventure as a vehicle for something yeah because it was like I think it was about $350,000 by that point through multiple projects but none of them ever I would say for the efforts that I did physically and mentally and logistically to the funds that I raised, it was definitely disproportionate. And But a lot came down to the awareness building of the campaigns as well. For the actual fundraising component, I know that often, especially when it comes to runners, we use these runs as a vehicle to do just that, to raise money. For you in your process, I'd love if you could shed a little light about how this may have worked at different points for different causes. Because I think a lot of people, although they want to do something similar, they want to raise funds, they want to support a cause, oftentimes they may feel uncomfortable about what has to go hand in hand with that. Mm, such a good question. And I get asked about this a lot because a lot of people have really great aspirations of using their running as a vehicle for something. Um, and then I, I get a lot of DMs about, Okay, I'm going to raise a million dollars. It's always the sum that everyone wants to raise. Um, how did you do it? And like my first thing is going, and they, and they also go, how did you get sponsored to have your costs covered to do it? 
Um, the first thing is you've got to want to do it. You've got to want to do it for you because if you don't want to do it for you, then you you can't possibly try and do it to raise funds or, you know, to generate awareness of a certain thing. Like that's got to be the root of your desire. Um, at least this is my, my opinion. So like people can approach this differently, but this is like from my formula. Um, and then I think the first thing is to like understanding the lay of the land and going, do the people that I'm trying to, you know, provide support to, do they actually want me to? Um, and is the initiatives that I'm considering to be a good idea something that the community uh, actually wants or am I imposing an idea that's not kind of going to be received and it's just like tokenism money and it's not going to actually sustain a community in a way that you want? And I'll say my feelings of this has definitely evolved over the years. But when I first started running, it wasn't about charity. It was about my personal self-discovery because running was very new for me and it was about testing those mental and physical limits. Once I had done that repeatedly, I was like, mm, I think it, I want my footsteps to count for more. And um, some people just love to run and they love for the thrill and they love for the time. And like, I applaud you, like you do you and that is amazing. But if you feel a calling for, to connect it in a different way, then you also do you. Um, and I, you know, sometimes I've had people criticize me for like running for change. And I'm like, I don't criticize you for being a competitive athlete. Like you choose the path that kind of suits what you want to do and I'll do the way that I want to go. And that's everyone has the right to extend themselves in the way that makes the most sense to them. And they also have the right to change it as time kind of progresses. I think the big thing for me is partnerships, working with sectorial experts, um, working with teams on the local ground that can help form your awareness of what you're trying to do and be a great support and to be quite clear on what your role is. Our role should be to possibly use our platform to share stories if we're being given permission to share those stories. Um, there's a really great thing. Um, I, I just spent seven days out in an Indigenous um, environment with a, the only Indigenous guiding group in Australia in this certain area called Alice Springs, and they have what's called it's the Songline. And like over a big, vast space of land, different Indigenous families and family groups will own a different point of that song. And they can only tell their story in their part. And they're not allowed to tell anyone else's story. And if you think about that, how often do we share other people's stories? And how often does it begin to dilute the real meaning behind that story? And it's something that I'm kind of playing with a bit at the moment. Like whilst I've always wanted to be a vehicle to share stories, it's so important to get permission and to get it really right. So you're doing justice to the people you're trying to work with. Um, and then I'd say, like, give if people here are wanting to run for change in whatever way that is, give yourself like a realistic goal. Like, don't make it a burden for yourself. Give you give yourself something that you can achieve, that you can feel like you've um, been successful, and you can always make your goal higher. And I think a lot of people create these crazy lofty goals. They realize really quickly it's very very hard to fundraise and train and plan logistics, and then all of a sudden they feel like a failure. And then they don't want to talk about it. But really, if you fundraise anything and you've done it with good intentions and it's going to the right place, good on you. Like you've done a great job. For sure. And you mentioned also finding funding to go on these missions. Let's dive into that a little yes, bit. Yes, I'm really passionate about this. I actually spoke to James Lawrence about this a little while ago, and he's doing the 100 Ironmans in 100 days at the moment, which looks grueling. <laughs> but I've been speaking to, I spoke to him and his wife a bit during his thing, but also spoke to him beforehand. And <sighs> if you expect someone else to pay for your dreams, I think you're going to be very disappointed. 
I think in order to do these big feats of endurance and tie them to social objectives, you must be willing to put your skin in the game before anyone else. Uh, And if you're not willing to put your skin in the game, why should you expect other people to do it? It's a totally different ask to ask to people to fundraise for charity, but to fundraise for your adventures. I don't know. Like, I just think like you need to put put your buy-in first and time and time again, you know, I've definitely been sponsored in different capacities, but every single project I have funded and I've put a lot of time into, uh, and I'm really proud about that. It's been a a much smaller percentage that an organization has got behind me, but then I've always delivered something for that. It's never a one-way streak. Like I've delivered multiple keynote presentations and workshops and marketing material and blog articles. Um, So I would say if you're looking for sponsors, find out what you can give more than what you're asking for and realize that there's a monetary value in like the exchanger's sponsorship dollars for what you can give. It's a really good exercise to know like what can you provide someone Uh, And and it's definitely a much better approach to hit up a sponsor um, when you kind of are thinking that in that frame of mind. Taking a break from today's episode to talk to you about my sponsor at Beam. From athletes to entrepreneurs, busy parents to weekend warriors, Beam was founded on the spirit of pushing limits and pursuing passions. My friends at Beam believe that everyone should have the opportunity to experience what better feels like, like better recovery, better sleep, or even just a better state of mind. All of their products are made with high quality, all natural ingredients and are intended to fit seamlessly into your lifestyle, whatever that may be. Beam is there to help elevate your everyday so that you can be your best self always. I am a huge fan of so many of their products, but my go-to as of late are their Dream Capsules. Now the Dream Powder, their Dream Blend, tastes like a cinnamon hot chocolate and it's got relaxing compounds in it like melatonin, magnesium, reishi, and L-theanine, plus their Nano CBD Powder. Now the Dream Capsules are all the things that I love about the Dream Blend, except in a convenient capsule. And when I take one about an hour to an hour and a half before bed, honestly, it just helps me get better, more restful sleep. Of course, I've got a great deal for you to get in on the action yourself. Head on over to beamtlc.com. That's B-E-A-M-T-L-C.com and use code HURDLE at checkout for 15% off. Again, that is beamtlc.com. Use code HURDLE at checkout for 15% off. First of all, this is just like the overall concept of self-belief, right? Like if you don't believe in yourself, then who are you to expect other people to believe that you can go after the things that you want? And then secondly, I also would tie this to the misconceptions that I feel go hand in hand with social media and Instagram and individuals perhaps assuming that certain people literally just get paid to live like their regular life. And 99.9% of the time, that is not the case at all. In fact, they are working and doing things that perhaps they're not sharing. And that is the stuff that empowers them to perhaps live the life that you think that they just get paid to live. Mm -hmm. So just something that I think about sometimes because I have certainly been messaged before and someone has asked me like, who pays you to do your day to day? And I'm like, 
do not see me working my ass off over here. Uh, I mean, it's so true. And I think self-belief that you said at the beginning is so critical because I think sometimes people use it as an excuse. Like if someone else is not going to pay me, well, then I can't do it. And I'm like, you've just made a massive block in front of you living your dreams as well. And, you know, the flip side, Emily, about people just having this presumption that we get paid to do all this kind of stuff. I do think that there's a responsibility of us showing the realness to kind of go like, this is like, I know you call it sometimes like the hustle or this is the hard work or this is, you know, I might have an experience and then I'm up to like 2am writing an article or, you know, I'm doing X, Y, and Z and all these things. And I, I do feel like social media has people just showing the glamorous life and not kind of showing like, I think the majority of life is made up of the everyday, the in-between um, and the mundane. Uh, and of course, they're like there's major highs and there's exciting things, but it's a much smaller percentage than people lead you to believe via their social media. After you walked away from Survivor, which you said was one of the most difficult mm. experiences, most challenging experiences, talk to me about what perhaps was one of the biggest lessons you learned in that time. I don't think Survivor was the place where I learned the majority of my lessons. Um, I was definitely mm -hmm. established in who I was as a person. It was actually gratitude. I was like, I am so happy for the life that I've created for myself. I wasn't waiting for Survivor to like kind of funnel me into another career. Like I'm living the career that I want. Like I'm a speaker. I'm an endurance athlete. I'm working with, you know, on social impact projects and I have the most amazing group of people that I'm surrounded by that was kind of the takeaway it was actually more gratitude um, for what I had as opposed to kind of striving for something that I didn't have um, and of course like I met my husband and we had a child <laughs> well we had a child and then <laughs> he became my husband um, and you know that was, I mean I think when I met you we weren't even I don't know if we were engaged but we were definitely we definitely had had our son. Like I feel like Harry was only like a couple of months old when I met you. I was still like pumping, like doing breastfeeding stuff in like every time like things calmed down, like from all the runs, I was like, I've just got to go and pump some milk out of you. <laughs> um, so that was, yeah, I think like I got to transition into another unknown that was motherhood. I was 34 and I was getting to a place in my life when I was thinking maybe I wouldn't have a family. Um, either a partner or um, children. And I had always thought that that was a part of my future as a kid. And then I realized I don't definitely need that, even if I would like it. But I think I had a lot of fears trapped up in like, maybe I wouldn't be able to have a kid. Um, and then I, I clearly that was just not true because we fell pregnant within five weeks of meeting each other. So that kind of was like, oh, that was definitely a limiting belief. Yay. <laughs> Let's make this work now. <laughs> And now you're a mom. I mean, in, in all of these stories so far, you have so many common themes being living with purpose. And also, I would argue, a strong sense of resilience. I mean, the challenges that you're taking on are unlike any challenge that so many will take on in their life. So for you, talk to me about what resilience means to you. It means yielding. It means putting aside this like beautifully crafted plan that you have an expectation on how things are going to look and yielding to the circumstances that are in front of you and remembering that you can always create the next best plan. 
And I think once you realise that, that so much of our direction is based on our responses to circumstances, it's incredibly empowering. You know, we're not kind of in the passenger seat of our lives. We're utterly in the driver's seat and things can happen in our control and outside of our control that can be quite negative. But we should harness the fact that we can then choose how to respond to that situation. Now, given that, sometimes we can't make a choice immediately alongside like a crisis or a disaster. And I've really been thinking in the more recent years about like the power of momentary pause, which goes against this thing that I always used to speak about of relentless forward motion. And now I realize that in order to have relentless forward motion, even if it's like small, small, small steps, sometimes we need the momentary pause to get back on relentless forward motion. And that is what resilience has kind of come down to me. It's like ownership and like being proud and feeling so freaking lucky that I get to own my choices. Oh, woman, you're speaking to my soul. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you a quick story. I was at the gym this morning and the workout that I had on deck was like two 16 minute blocks. And so you start with the warm up. That warm up is two miles. I do one 16 minute block. I already at that point started to feel just super emotional. I'm dealing with a huge life transition right now. And at the end of the first 16 minute block, like the wheels totally fall off and I am crying. I am like, all right, like I'm going to call this one. It's just not my day. I go into the locker room and I stand there and I'm like, not today. This is not how it's going to end today. Mm -hmm. And I literally changed my mask, put a different mask on, went back upstairs, got back on a different treadmill in a different part of the gym and finished another 16 minute block. And for me, that is like very much what you're talking about, about this momentary pause. Like sometimes we have so many feelings or could have judgment about not executing something in a way that we thought that it should be executed. But then in turn, it's up to us to kind of come back to what it is your purpose is or what it is your mission is with this particular item. For me, getting the thing done was more important than the methods in which it happened. So to go back upstairs, to kind of put my pride aside and go back into that after taking that very, very valuable momentary pause, game changer, game changer. Oh, yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's powerful when you realize, oh, taking a little stop is the thing that reduces the overwhelm in the mind. Because I think when you're at the brink, like mentally or physically, we inevitably think we have very few options at our disposal. So it's about finding a way of reducing the stress and anxiety that goes through our body and our mind. And there's like, everyone's got to work at their own toolkit, their own toolkit for reducing overwhelm. Momentary pause is one of them, but more importantly, momentary pause helps us access the other tools. Um, So that's the gateway to get to those ones, whether that's like momentary pause, then I'm going to do some deep breathing. Momentary pause, I'm going to sit down and I'm just going to like regroup my thoughts. Momentary pause, I'm going to get my headphones in and that's going to take me to an altered state. Like, you know, momentary pause, get some food. I could go for 10 hours on all these different things you could do, but think about it in a, like when you're hitting the wall in a marathon. I think we all, or we think I've got to keep going the way that I was going or I've got to stop. We feel a failure when we've got to start walking. We feel a failure when, you know, like we do the walk, run, walk, run, you know, like, and it's actually not the truth. Like no one's telling us how we have to do these things. Yes, we can have ideals about it, which creates structure to the planning and all that's beautiful, but yielding 
to the circumstance is actually where the growth happens. And I think what I hear when you say this is the importance of being agile in your methods. Mm, you know, agile pivot, it's so it's so important. You know, last year we went through an adventure, not of our choosing. Now, I've always thought that adventure is defined as a journey with an unknown outcome. And when you enter into those, any start line, you cannot hold on to um, your objective being the outcome and the journey at the same time. You've got to make a choice. At the start, I always say to myself, I don't give a crap about how it's going to end. I'm focusing on the journey. And I think last year, like something happened to us on an adventure level that we none of us wanted to sign up for. And, you know, people experienced some severe hardship. And I'm obviously not talking about the people who were in like states of peril and in a really, really bad way. But for everyone who had, still had a roof over their head, who was able to pay for food, um, whose health was intact and just had to be in lockdown, there was a lot of different coping mechanisms for going with and through that adventure. To your point, in these adventures, so to speak, like the crisis is going to happen. But then just like what I was reflecting on from my experience at the gym before, and as many had to reflect upon over the last 14 plus months, you are in charge of your response to these crises. You know, I've also felt not only are you in charge, but some of the best things that have happened to me in my life have been out of a crisis or significant disruption. I could go back to like, I mean, I don't even know if I'm going to talk about this, but like in Egypt, you know, in one of the races I did, I, I faced a sexual assault situation and sorry, trigger, I'm sometimes, I don't talk about it that often. I actually just did a conference where I spoke about it and someone's like, you need to give a trigger warning. And I was like, I didn't get a trigger warning. No one gave me a trigger warning and it happens to so many women. We should just be comfortable talking about it. Coming out of it and out of the trauma and the crisis, it then definitely realigned me to working within my purpose and to also being able to connect and engage with humanity in a whole other level. And it was the ripple effect for the work that I did in South Africa, in India, which is now the ripple effect of why I'm doing a new project in India, um, well, for India, should I say, right now as we speak and so disruption and crisis has been some of the best catalysts for me moving deeply in purpose for you i mean if we're gonna unpack egypt just briefly put us in the days that led up to this mm. incident for you so we i've actually never just been the one that's brought up egypt um, people are always like try and bring it up and i don't know what i just brought it up then but it's on my mind as this ultimate now catalyst for good. I was I was doing a six-day stage race. Uh, it was in um, Sahara Desert and it's like the hottest desert on the planet. And I was definitely not fit going into that race. I was studying really, really hard and I literally was finishing an assignment to the very night before this six-day stage race. And when is this? This is in 2010. It was part of that four series. Okay. So on day one, I kind of went out and, you know, kind of mid-packer. Mid um, but I had known by that point that like, just give yourself pace, like starting is everything. Even if it means you're starting slow, just kind of start. Um, you will adapt if you're patient. And then on day two, I felt a little bit better and I was running with a group of guys and they, it was great. We had camaraderie. We were talking, it was awesome, but we got into a checkpoint uh, and they were just taking forever to fill up their water bottles. Um, and I was kind of like, oh, do I wait? Do I keep going? And I just kind of like to like water and go. I don't like to kind of like sit because sometimes when I sit, that's when I'm like, it's hard to get back up again. 
Um, so I kind of went off. That's when I actually saw um, an Egyptian up on a top of a sand dune. And it's in these races, like the race directors don't have like race management team out on the course typically. You know, they, they meet you at checkpoints, but in between the checkpoints, there's no one there. So I remember just feeling like, oh, what's he doing there? Like, what is it? Is there a race official? What's going on? And I had no contextualization for like how close we were to a town or a village. Like, I just was like, I'm in Egypt. I'm in the Sahara Desert. I'm like in the race world. And, you know, without kind of going through like the full description, but there was a interaction and clearly he was not a part of the race team uh, and he attempted to sexually assault me during the race and I'm very very lucky that a man on a motorbike came by and scared him away and I always look back at that moment and kind of go like I had poles in my hands and I didn't do anything to defend myself literally as it happened I just like stood there paralyzed with fear and I always thought that I would have more of a fight in me but I in that moment I had no fight and then when I tried to scream, nothing came out. And then after that point, I lost my voice for a bit, like in, in the race. Like it's like I'd lost my, yeah. Anyway, I kind of like moved forward through the race, terrified. And I'll, I'll always remember that there, it was like a lot of wind and there were these little race pink like flags that were directing you which way to go. And I kept flapping in the wind and I kept thinking that he was behind me. And so I ended up kind of like, kind of crawling like backwards like looking one direction and kind of going forward and I didn't take on any fluids I was just like survival mode get to safety Uh, and the first person I saw was Jennifer Steinman who is like one of my dearest friends in the world now Uh, and she was actually a filmmaker and she was out there filming not I didn't really know what she was filming she was initially filming this Irish guy but then she was just filming everyone and she now tells me that when she saw me it was this like filmmaker's dilemma do I film what's happening or do I get this girl who's become my friend to safety? And she said she put down without hesitation her camera and walked me one kilometre into the checkpoint. And then like all my composure went and I just kind of like broke down. And yeah, I mean, in the end, like I nearly wanted to, I wanted to quit um, because I had like dehydrated, like heat exhaustion, mentally switched out from it. Kind of like, I, it was like, I didn't think that that could happen. She's so freaking naive of me. I mean, I always think like in these experiences, we're so, we, we, we always do the postmortem. Like we always kind of analyze and reflect on a situation after it's occurred, but we don't investigate the pre-mortem which is so important of going like, what are all the reasons why in this run, in this business venture, I won't complete it or we won't be successful. And I've been pretty good at doing that through my life because my legal brain, but it was, I remember all my pre-mortem like barriers were like about me, like I'll get dehydration or I can't carry the pack or I'll get a blister. It wasn't like you're running in a country where the status of women is incredibly inferior to that of a man. Um, I didn't think that I was that close to a village. I just didn't, did not contemplate it. Um, and I quit, but again, this is like where I really learned about momentary pause. They, I still had seven Ks left of that day to go. I'm like, I'm done. They put me in, put me back in the tent. And there were all these competitors who thought that I was the first female to finish for that day. And so everyone's coming by the tent and like congratulating me. And I'm like, I don't want to explain it. I don't want to like accept congratulations felt like this icky in between land and with like 45 minutes I was just like I'm gonna I've got to go back out there like you know I I do you know what it was just like 
I can't let someone that I'm never going to see again control what my future is going to look like for me. It was as simple as that. And so I went back out there and it was like, it was like a warrior run. Like I, I had a little iPod that I was going to save for day five of the race because it's the long stage. And I was like, fuck that. I'm using the iPod. <laughs> and I'm like using that precious battery. And I like put on, I don't even know what it was, but whatever I did, it like transported me to like the strongest version of who I needed to be. And, you know, even to this day, I, I did a presentation yesterday and people, I brought, I discussed this situation and someone said do you reckon she's over it like they said to one of my friends at at the table do you reckon she's over it and um she's like she's totally over it and I'm like I got over it then like I got over it in that 7k run and what I can say is like we finished these experiences where things happen outside of our control and they're really horrific we never expected it we have a choice is this going to form part of our narrative that negatively impacts every single thing that we do in the future Or is it just a part of what you've experienced and maybe, just maybe, it can become part of your superpower? And for me, it it was the latter. It's interesting, that question, do you think that she's over it? Mm. I don't know necessarily, and maybe this is perhaps just my perspective, but I don't know if that's actually something that you quote unquote get over. I think to your point, it becomes a part of your story. And sure, maybe you're not deep in those feelings that you experienced in that tent anymore. Of course not. I mean, I'm so happy to to hear you harnessing that experience and now using it to fuel your passion and where you're going and what you hope for others in this world. But I don't necessarily know if that's ever something that you just quote unquote get over, you know? No, it's like a part of us, like all of our experiences form the fabric of who we are. It definitely has made me, I've leaned into understanding that situation a bit more. Um, And I remember when I did work in India and I was exploring those barriers to quality education. And I remember reading about a case in 2012 where a young woman was sexually assaulted, raped, and then murdered by, well, gang raped on a bus um, in New Delhi. Most horrific, like such the most horrific crime. And then I remember watching a documentary about it and those boys who did it from, and not that it's like I have compassion for those boys, like I actually don't, but I have compassion for people who are living in a situation where they are brought up to not know any better, where they don't have any opportunity to have any positive interactions with um, the other gender. They don't, they also are not going to school. These boys were not, did not have the opportunity to go to school. Um, and it's horrific crime and they did, and you would hope that humanity would tell you that that is completely wrong, but they were ingrained in a culture which was incredibly patriarchal where there was no respect for women and those boys were a subject of their environment as well. And so when I decided to run across India, initially I was like it was all going to be about focused on women. And then I was like if there's also boys not going to school and if I don't open up my remit of belief that both boys and girls need to go to school together and have the opportunity to have these positive relationships with each other from a young age to gain respect and understanding for each other, then potentially like the solution is not going to be achieved. Yeah. Wow. And something else that you were talking about before was kind of getting down on yourself a little bit about maybe not thinking about all of the different possibilities that could happen 
in that scenario, but I feel like many can relate about that idea when it comes to our everyday life. I remember on one of the first episodes of the show, I sat down with someone who said, if you don't have a plan B, then you don't have a plan. But the thing is, is that you can only do so much risk mitigation, so to speak, to prepare you for the everyday. But sometimes it goes back to what we were saying about making that pivot in the Mm. hurdle and being agile and understanding that there's only so much preparing you can do and not getting down on yourself when these hurdles arise. Yeah. Beautifully said. I mean, and I mean, another thing that it's really empowered me to think about is allowing more women to have the opportunity to experience our wild places uh, and to nature And I mean, when I was a kid, like I was outdoorsy, but I probably wasn't that outdoorsy. And I definitely didn't build up my resilience and my self-reliance and confidence in being capable in the outdoors. And there's a lot of girls are into that category. Like we didn't get shown how to put up a tent. We might have helped in the tent process, but we were never left to do it ourselves. We didn't build a fire. And like it's kind of helped me. I, I created recently this year, again, like an idea coming out of COVID was this um, community called Her Trails with a really good friend of mine who's based in LA. Um, he's a Nike athlete and trainer, Beck Wilcock. Um, and we've known each other since, you know, like a decade ago when we were training for trails back in the day and we've stayed in touch and we've created this like really incredible community where we do like holistic online programs. And the first one was a half marathon because I've always felt that the half marathon when trained properly is a gateway for any distance if you do it holistically. So if you embed, you know, runs that have different stimulus from like speed and hills and threshold and all that stuff, when you do your mobility, when you do your strength, when you educate yourself on like what we've got this thing called like a trial time series and it's different elements of the physical, mental and logistical. And then like we also have like a weekly podcast and it's been like the best thing about creating community and reminding women like what we learn in these runs and in these adventures should be carried through into our everyday life in anything else we do, which is about how to be resilient, how to be resourceful and self-reliant and also how to have fun, like to take the light side of this stuff. Like, I mean, we've talked about a bunch of heavy topics in the last little bit, but like the lightness of our life is actually what carries us through a lot of hardship as well. And it's just something that, you know, running is amazing, but it's not everything, right? It's like, it's really the smallest thing in the world, but it can give us so much joy if we approach it that way. All right, Sam, what is Relief Run? Ah, you're Thank you. (laughs) Amazing. Relief Run kicked off in 2020. Um, Myself and my really good friend, Nick Davidson, decided to put together basically an e-commerce platform to um, establish a virtual run to support the Australian bushfire relief crisis. Um, And for any of your listeners who possibly took part in the relief run, I want to thank you because I was amazed that more people from overseas signed up for it than Australia. And we had 19,000 registered participants from 96 countries on every continent of the planet and in a 12-day campaign that had only a two-day lead-in period with no major brand, no celebrity. We raised one point, I think it was 1.2 or something million dollars in 12 days. And we had this deal with Stripe. I don't know if you guys use Stripe much in North America, but Stripe initially was like, yeah, whatever you guys raise, we'll just waive the transaction fee. And they never knew we'd get to a million. <laughs> and they were like, okay, we've committed to, you know, they waived all of our transaction fees. So every single dollar of what people gave in their $50 um, registration fee 
went to the Australian bushfire crisis, to families that were experiencing incredible loss. Um, and it's like been very transformative to those people. 2021, what I think is one of the biggest global crises right now is what's happening in India. And, and you know, you can tell like India holds such a big part in my heart, but India holds one sixth of the world's population. It holds a big part in everyone's life, whether you know it or not. There's been so many reports in the last couple of days with people going, my invoices haven't been paid. So I've like called this company and then I find out from the call center that the invoices are not being paid because all the family, all the Indians who are working maybe in that call center are either um, looking after six people, sick family members, they're sick, or they might have lost their life. It's like horrific. Over 4,000 people are losing their life per day in India at the moment, and we're not even getting close to the peak. And also the reporting is probably really incorrect. There are journalists who are waiting at crematoriums and saying it's you know, a factor of five to 10 higher than that amount. Um, but there's just not enough testings in the rural communities. Like they just don't have access. It's incredibly primitive um, medical services up there. And so we decided to reboot the relief run. And in fact, it's going to be a kind of concept moving forward that will direct whatever is the kind of global issue that should really require a global mass response. And so the weekend of the 11th of June to the 13th of June, anywhere, anytime, you know, do it and it's going to be a 5k, 10k or a 21k and um, it's a $50 um, Australian um, but anyone from around the world can register and it's all going to go to World Vision Australia's India COVID-19 appeal and I can say hand on heart I have worked with World Vision Australia as an ambassador and I but more importantly I've been on the ground in the communities all across India and so I know their reach and I know their community focused and so I feel very confident that it's going to go to supporting the most important people who are coping the most severely in India right now. Um, and we're launching hopefully on Monday, but it's been like, I've been at this, basically we decided on Friday and we've been like, you know, this is kind of my, you know, my thing. I could turn something from nothing into something, but I don't do it on my own. I now put together the most amazing people to do it. And it's because I've now had over a decade of credibility of doing what I say I'm going to do and crafting these projects and being transparent in my social like impact and advocacy. And that's what comes from experience. From the outside looking in, if you were to remove yourself and you heard someone just give that explanation, how would that make you feel to hear someone talking about putting into place something that literally will help thousands and thousands and thousands of people? Oh, I mean, to be honest, like I, this makes me a little bit emotional because I don't think about that. I just kind of think about we're not going to do anywhere near enough, to be perfectly honest. The amount of people in India who are going through, like I've got friends in India and their family members are sick and, you know, they don't have enough crematorium spaces. So people's bodies are being like put up into the rivers right now. Like the situation is like there was a beautiful quote that I needed to hear. And it, okay, so it was by um, this guy, Ramanan. He's an epidemiologist and economist at Princeton. He's been camped out with his family in an apartment in New Delhi. He's the founder and director of the Center for Disease Dynamics, Economics and Policy, and he's an expert in antibiotic resistance. And basically he goes, government statistics indicate that the virus is newly infecting millions of Indians each week and that some 20,000 or 30,000 people are dying weekly. 
But most experts, including uh, this um, economist, says that that number captures a fraction of the true COVID-19 toll. He says, quote, it's a war zone. It's worse than what you're reading in the papers or seeing on TV. Whatever the numbers are, they don't tell the full story. The human toll is devastating. The current surge differs fundamentally from India's experience last year. This is truly a national wave. It's not urban. It's not rural. It's not north or south. It's everywhere. It just sums it up for me because often places in like India get like really localized to the area in which they live in, like a crisis or a certain circumstances affecting one part of the country, but it is everywhere. Uh, and I don't know how they're going to get it back on track. They certainly, what they need is like medical supplies, PPD, um, you know, they obviously need a, a, a much swifter response from the government as well. But how can we not as humans allow someone, a country to be in that degree of suffering and not do one small thing? And what I can say from seeing the relief run last year, which is probably a little bit more positive note than what I felt when you first asked me that question, is we all do one little thing and it counts up. So like mass micro donation is the most empowering, powerful thing to do. Like we don't just need one company to give us like tens of thousands of dollars. All we're asking is like a whole bunch of people to give 50 bucks and it goes super, super far. And if you think like what, I mean, $50 is, you know, a lot for a lot of people, but probably it's a meal out. Like it's not, it's like us sacrificing one meal for possibly someone to have their life saved. And when you put it in perspective like that, it's really not a hard decision to make, particularly when it allows us to feel a part of a solution. And, you know, I've run across India, I put my body and I guess in some ways sometimes my life on the line and I didn't raise anywhere near the amount that I did through the relief run. The reason for that is a couple. Like obviously the bushfires like was in the hearts and minds of everyone all around the planet because it was all over the media. I don't think what's happening in India is in anywhere near the degree in the media as the Australian bushfire crisis. Like it's pretty horrific when you think about it. I think it's maybe we're desensitised from seeing people in India suffer and I think we need to stop that narrative because people don't deserve to suffer just because they live in a certain country. Yeah, and people can make a difference. So that's my call to action. Please join us on the relief run anywhere, 11th to 13th. Bring your, you know, what was so powerful last time is like all run leaders in different parts of the country and different parts of the world mobilize their communities. It was everyone's initiative. And that was what was so cool about it. Um, I clearly don't need to run across the country um, for us to do something amazing. Everyone just needs to go in for a little run. For a little run. You said everyone can do something small. I just, again, need to praise you because what you're doing in this organization and this effort is not small at all. It's actually quite big. So it's really beautiful to see you in purpose, on purpose, going after something that really matters to you. Mm -hmm. I think so many times throughout this episode, we've talked about the benefit of the momentary pause. And so I come to you and pose this question, which is how do you make sure to intentionally take that momentary pause so that you can keep showing up in these big ways? Because again, I don't have to rattle off the dozens of causes and thousands and thousands of people that your individual efforts in com combination with others, but your individual efforts have impacted. So Sam, how do you momentary pause to take care of you? I'm not doing a great job of it right now because there is a finite window 
for this campaign to get up and to hit into the hearts and minds of people while India is in the media space. And I accept that. And the campaign's life goes to, you know, June 14th, essentially. And I'm willing to like go hard at it for that period. But then, and I think we can, like we can in small doses and small windows when we know the exit point is, we can really go to the capacity and we can deepen and we do great work and we can be single-minded focused. And I'm very lucky to have an incredible husband who backs me doing this and helps me at home. Like we have an equal partnership and I couldn't do what I do without him, even though he's launching his book this week or next week. And um, like, I'm like, sorry, I know you've been working on that for a long time, but we're doing Relief Run again. But that's the team. Like that's the team that I have in my personal life and I have professional teams that allow me to do it as well. But I promise you, because I'm promising myself listening to me myself talk right now, that high frequency state in which I'm operating in right now cannot be sustained. And on June, maybe 16th, after I've like made sure all the funds have gone to the right place and done all my documentations and ticked off all the appropriate things, like I'll go off social media. And then I have a break because I'll be prolifically on social media sharing the stories and like being engaged because we're offering a service. The interesting thing is when we did the relief run last time, you know, some people are happy to give the donation, but other people genuinely just want to do it because they want to do a virtual run. And our job as like offering a service is like, you've got to be incredibly professional. You've got to respond to every single email. Um, and we had 19,000 people sign up last time. And they say it's always like a couple of percent that always have an inquiry. Um, so there's a lot <laughs> of emails to respond to. And I'm going to do it again this time. I've got a few more people I'm working with on it, but I will be just getting back into my normal run routine when I get home um, after like June 14th. But I think an interesting thing for your listeners who are obviously probably a lot of them are runners, we define ourselves often by our ability to run. I now am in a place where I know that I can't do these projects and work super hard on them and be running at the same time. Uh, And so I have to kind of like take that off me in order to have capacity mentally and physically in order to do it. But then I just go out for walks. So it's a more yin restorative based thing. And it's something that if you start your day with five bars, um, going for a run sustains a bar, but doing something of a mindfulness level like meditation or yoga or a walk creates a new bar. And so that's how I kind of create bars now. And then I do a complete restoration at the end of it. I will hold you to that. I also, I love that you just reiterated that you have found the right way for you to show up to something that's really important to you and not to compare yourself or judge how you need to get through these moments and these challenges based on what you might see somebody else doing and how they execute. Also, it's impossible not to draw a comparison to how you were just articulating that you feel you must show up over the next month or so. This will come out in a couple of weeks, but over the next month or so leading up to this relief run, drawing the comparison between that and perhaps in the moment running a marathon, right? You show Mm -hmm. up and you're at the marathon and that's the focus for the next three, four, five, however long (laughs) it takes you to do it, hours. Like people might look at the way that I do things and go, that's just not for me. My best friend has some of the best boundaries I've ever seen. And she goes, Sam, I choose to not be busy. Um, And I go, I'm happy to be busy in isolated periods of time if it's for a really important reason. 
And like, that's fine. Like we hold space for each other. We know how it works. Like if she's doing a juice cleanse, like I can't even call her because she's like, my boundary is you don't call me when I'm doing this for myself, but I'll still pick up my phone for my really close friends right now, even if I'm in a really chaotic period of time, because like there's like five or six people that if they call, I'll just always answer the phone. And so like, we all have our own formula, just work out what works for you. And it's like the whole idea of extension in life is you're meant to extend in your uniquely marvelous, unique way. And um, that's a part of life. Like, and I think we learn the more we do, the more we go beyond our comfort zone, the more we can work that out. Right now, if I was to look at your Instagram, you look to be this adventure runner, an endurance athlete, a mom, a wife, founder of the Her Trails, as we talked about before with Beck. When you look in the mirror, what is it that you see looking back at you? These are all things that I do, but I just am not defined by any of them. Actually, my one of my really closest girlfriends did exactly what you just did to me four hours ago. She goes, do you know you're doing all these things right now? And I'm like, yeah, but like I, I chose to do all that stuff. Like I love all those different components to my life. Like I've crafted a career where I get to do all the stuff that I love. Like no one... I'm not on the race to nowhere. I'm on like my race. That's what I look at in the mirror of like, I choose my day. I, yes, it goes intense at times. I could pull it back if I want, you know, I can go full throttle if I want to as well, but like I live a pretty incredible life. Um, and I like, I have an incredible family who I love a lot. Uh, and I'm not afraid to show like the icky, yucky, hard stuff. And I think I would just ask that more people be willing to kind of show that because I have also experienced the more that I show like the challenge of it, um, the more people go, oh, I'm so glad you do it. And I'm like, well, if you like seeing it, you show it too. You show it too. Right now, my friend, you have an opportunity to give the Sam who is headed back to Australia after spending that time in Texas, trying to really find her footing and what it is that she wants to do and where it is that she wants to take her career you right now have an opportunity to give that woman a piece of advice. What do you tell her? Oh, no regrets. One of the speakers at the conferences that I'm at right now, her name's Bronnie Ware, and she's got this book called The Five Common Regrets of the Dying. And she was an Australian palliative care nurse, you know, doing what is some of the most important work, like helping people transition into that ultimate unknown. And and she was doing it. She recorded their regrets. And the number one regret was, I wish I had the courage to live a life true to myself and not the life that others expected of me. The fifth regret was, I wish I let myself be happier. So I think no regrets and like just doing what you want to do. And I've done that. Like I've done that through my life. And so I would just kind of keep, I'd remind myself like, just don't have regrets. Everything that you do at one point in your life, whether it was good, bad, it was a failure, their lessons, it's a piece of that puzzle. Like I said at the very beginning, like I love how the puzzle all comes together. And sometimes it doesn't make sense. Like the pieces are kind of look fragmented and they're apart, but with like trust and faith and confidence in yourself, like you can, they'll come together at the right time. So grateful to know you, so excited to see what you're doing and so happy to promote it. How do the hurdlers keep up with you? And one more time, give us some information and details about the upcoming relief run. 
Yes, uh, you, you, I am most prolific on at Samantha Gash um, Instagram. Um, our Her Trails account is at her underscore trails. Um, so if anyone wants to kind of do any of the programs, um, when traveling comes back up, I'd love to have you in Australia and have you for a retreat. They're just like amazing. They're the best. I'd love to host you. And obviously Relief Run, it's at Relief Run. It's, the website's going to be reliefrun.com.au. It's going live in a couple of days, so probably a bit into when you um, release this uh, podcast. But, um, you know, the, over the weekend of the 11th, the 13th, I warmly encourage you to register, to do the run, to share it with your people because that's how it took off last time. It didn't take off because of me. It took off because people felt connection to it and they shared it and therefore it spread like I would say like 95% of people would have no idea that it was Samantha Gash in Australia like ferreting away in her den on the stuff on the website Um, and that's exactly how it should be. So let yourself be a leader in your community to being the catalyst for change. Grateful for you. I'm over at Emily Abadi and at Hurdle Podcast. Another hurdle conquered. Catch you guys next time.